And everybody said amen, right? Um, You know, when you just catch a glimpse of today with our children leading us in worship, recognizing the accomplishments of our college graduates, can I just say to us, feel good about the future because God is at work and we're grateful for that and uh, certainly we're at work here in the life of our church. Well, today I want us to continue our conversation about family. And you know, our theme for this entire year is why does it matter? And each season of the year, we are addressing various aspects of that particular question. And so for the spring, our topic is family. Why does it matter? And today, I want us to talk about a particular topic with regard to family relationships. And so, I've entitled the message today, Family Life, Anger Management. So, I want us to look at a text that uh, is found in Ephesians. It's not really a text that specifically was written to families. However, the basic core teaching of this text has application in our homes and how we choose to live our lives as Christians. And so if you'll look with me at Ephesians 4, we're going to begin in verse 25, but really the context for the conversation goes back to verse 17, where Paul says, quit living like Gentiles. Is basically his admonition. And then he shares some theological teaching about that. Then you come to verse 25, and here's the practical explanation where Paul says, this is how you will demonstrate that you have been redeemed out of your former lifestyle and you're living in a new way. And so I want you to look at this text with me. Where Paul says, um, beginning in verse um, 25, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. One theologian says that's one of the purest signs in the first century world of Christianity. You go from being a thief to a philanthropist. Find that fascinating. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Again, this text has a general feel to it. It's it's addressing all of our relationships as Christians Initially, in the church. 
But this also, I believe, has application to the family. So bear with me. Here's where I want to start this morning. We've been talking about this already in this series, but we've learned together already that the family is home to love, acceptance, commitment, and blessing. Of course it is. As Christian families, hopefully that is your reality. That your family, my family, is home to expressions of love. We've talked about acceptance, how I view acceptance, commitment, and blessing. But I think we also know the family is also home to disappointment, hurt, anger, short tempers, quick triggers, frustration. Well, you know, we've shown some video clips this series from various TV families to help us think about the topic that we're addressing. So today we're going to watch a clip from Everybody Loves Raymond. Y'all familiar with Everybody Loves Raymond? Okay, good. So Raymond and Deborah, they live across the street from Raymond's parents, Frank and Marie, also Robert Frank, I mean, uh, Raymond's older brother. And y'all know that Robert views Raymond as the favorite of his mom. Well, there in this particular episode, Raymond and Deborah are having a little bit of an argument over what to call their mothers. So in other words, should Raymond call Deborah's mother mom? And should Deborah call Raymond's mother mom? Now, if y'all know anything about this show, for Deborah to call Raymond's mother mom is a tad dicey to say the least. So they have a little argument and they finally decide, okay, I'll call your mother mom, you call my mother mom, and let's just see how it plays out. So here's what happened after that attempt was made. That's where we'll pick up the story. <clears throat> Judy. <laughs> What's going on? What happened? She rejected me. What are you talking about? Your mother. I went over there and I called her mom and she turned me down. Really? I told her that I wanted to call her mom and she just went, that's all right. Huh. Why did you make me do that? Get out of here. I didn't, I didn't make you do it. I was just trying to win an argument. I didn't think that you would actually try it. Oh. Not believe her. She's unbelievable. Your mother is unbelievable. I believe you. Hey, Deb. Oh, good. You guys were there. Was that the most humiliating thing you have ever seen? Brutal, Raymond. <laughs> I felt bad for you, sweetheart. Had trouble finishing my lunch. What happened? After she said no, what did you do? Just sat there like an idiot. Us too. Marie just went about her business as if nothing had happened. I know how you feel, Deb. That's just how she is. Only certain people are allowed in the pantheon of affection. The Pope, Frank Sinatra, Placido Domingo... And Raymond. You just gotta let it go, that's all. You gotta let it go! 
Yeah, like he did. I know what. Maybe I'll start calling her Marie. Bet you wouldn't even notice. Hello, Marie. Hello, Robbie. Have you seen Placido Domingo? <laughs> or Raymond? Here you go, Robbie. Thanks, Marie. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Mom. Oh, me, and there you have it. Um, <clears throat> so, anger <clears throat> in a home. How do you manage it? How do you express it? How do you acknowledge it? How do you learn to deal with it? Because we know <clears throat> we're all going to face it. It's inevitable in every family. Well, here's the disturbing news about our country. All of us, I think, right now are concerned about our country. We watch the news, and even as late as last night, yesterday afternoon, another shooting, random, and these acts of violence that are disturbing. But I would say this, <clears throat> the epidemic of domestic violence in our nation is deeply disturbing. I'm not sure how familiar, familiar you are with what's taking place across America in our homes. Do you know that on average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in their home in the United States? One out of seven women, one out of 25 men have been injured by an intimate partner. On a typical day in America, we average more than 20,000 phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines. Of all violent crimes in America, 15% of them are between intimate partners. In fact, if you think about it, 20 people per minute in America, in our homes, are physically abused by an intimate partner so if we spend 70 minutes together in this room or so for this worship service, that's 1,400 people that will be abused by their spouse during this time we're together. And so when I read those kind of statistics, I can't help but ask myself, what, what is happening in our homes? They are filled with so much violence. I don't know if y'all remember the cartoon Frank and Ernest. Some of y'all may not remember them, but they're sitting on a park bench and an older man comes up and there's not quite enough room for the older man to sit down. And Frank looks at the older man and he says, I was told that I would be considered a success in life if I just made one person happy. And then he says, and I've chosen me. Well, perhaps therein lies the problem because it seems to me <clears throat> that there are people across our world, our nation, who have decided that the greatest thing in life is just to make ourselves happy. 
And so when we engage in these disagreements in our homes, sometimes there's no give and take, so to speak. So let me ask you this question. You heard uh, Robert. What did he say? You just got to let it go, right? So is let it go the best advice for managing conflict and anger in our homes? Should we just say, just let it go? Isn't there a song called Let It Go? Is that right? Kids in there? Oh, let's don't sing it. Okay, I have several (laughs) several parents looking at me going, no, don't do it. We've heard it a thousand times. Well, here's what I would say. If we're going to talk about our homes, I want to begin with the positive side, if I may. And, and I would say we, we must find ways to practically and appropriately express our love for each other and our families. Let's start there um, before we talk about anger. We, we need to express our love for each other. You know, when I was a little boy growing up, my, my daddy's favorite football coach was Vince Lombardi. A lot of y'all remember Vince Lombardi. In, in the next service, they can Google Vince Lombardi. Um, <laughs> But my dad thought he was the best football coach on the planet. Vince Lombardi was asked one day, what are the essential ingredients for a successful football team? He said, that's easy, three. One, fundamentals, two, discipline, three, love. And so when he was asked, obviously, the person asking the question said, well, coach, we get fundamentals and discipline, but I mean, love in the NFL? He said, I give my team opportunities every season to express their love for each other. And we comment on it and celebrate it. He said, because what I've learned is if you can teach people to love each other and express their love for each other in the moment when they need it, they'll sacrifice one for the other. Now, I would just say to y'all, if that's a football coach talking about a football team, surely we can figure that out in our families that we have to learn to express our love for each other. Ways to celebrate the fact that we do really care for each other. And so those expressions of love, I would just say to all of us, that's just on you. You, you, You've got to figure out how to do that in your home with your family. I think someone wrote a book called Love Languages. Do y'all remember that? Where you, you try to figure out What's the best way for somebody to receive love in my family? What's the best way for me to speak that, so to speak, into their lives? And so I would tell you that we have to learn how to do that. So I just want to encourage you and your families, figure out how to express your love for each other. And I would tell you, in my my humble opinion, I believe you do that in small ways on the everyday. That's where I think love is best expressed. Not necessarily in the grand showy things. Anybody can do that on your anniversary or birthday or whatever. I mean, just in the in the everyday, in the in the small ways, just communicate your love for each other and your families. Now, with that said, here's the challenge that I want to talk about today. We must also discover paths of expressing anger in our families. And I would, I would place this caveat on that in ways that are not harmful or abusive. That's the challenge. Because here's what I've learned about anger. Anybody can get mad. True? You don't have to go to school. 
You don't even have to be taught. Anybody can get mad. But here's what I believe is the challenge, and this is the essence of, of the sermon today. Here's how here's why I'd put it. To be angry with the right person for the right reason at the appropriate level at the right time and express it in the right way is really hard. So let me say that again. To be angry with the right person for the right reason at the appropriate level at the right time and express it in the right way is challenging. Because so many times we carry around unresolved conflict and we're then filled with the bitterness that comes from that. And then whenever we get bumped, a whole lot of that just spills out and we have a hard time managing it. So I want to think with you today about how we can appropriately find paths of expressing anger in ways that are not going to be harmful and abusive because you're going to express anger. Everybody in this room is going to do it. And more often than not, because you live in close proximity with family members, they're the ones that are going to receive it. And so how do we do it? Let let me just offer you some encouragement that I think some of it's taught in this text. Some of it is just what I've learned through the years. I, I would begin by saying this. I think an acknowledgement of temperament is an important step in learning to manage anger and resolve conflict in a family. I think acknowledging temperament. I'm, I'm a firm believer in temperament. I just believe we're wired differently. You know, when we were in, in college, um, I, I studied psychology. I ended up with a minor in psychology. And when you study the, um, the development theories of psychology... And particularly with regard to children. There are all kinds of views. But this is what I believe that I've just experienced as well as I I think research bears it out. Children show up on planet earth with a temperament. And they are just different. How else do you explain You take X number of children raised in the same home by the same parents with the same DNA and they are just different. A lot of research has been done about that. that. You know, temperament has to do with how people respond to things. This is what psychologists tell us. I'm going to put it in my language. There's basically three types of temperament. Some people are just easygoing. They're They're just flexible. Some people are kind of slow on the take up. Some people are just intense. They're just, they're just active. And so a group of psychologists have studied that. If you go back in the, in the mid to late 70s, there was a lot of research done with infants and toddlers. It's a little controversial today. But back then there was a, there was a predominant thread in child psychology of studying newborns, infants, toddlers. And so, for example, you may be familiar with Jerome Kagan. He's a psychologist. He used to conduct these experiments with, new, experiments with newborn babies, monitor their heart rate and all that, and expose them to stimuli to see how they responded. And it's just a fact. Some of these newborn babies responded immediately with physiological responses that are typically associated with anxiety when they received the stimuli. Some didn't. Some finally did after a while. So it's almost like from the very beginning, these three temperaments are already pre-programmed in. 
Now, anybody in this room that's a parent of more than one child can tell you right now, they are just different. Some of them are easygoing. Some of them have no idea what easygoing is. <clears throat> now, over time, children, adults, we, we, can, we can monitor, we can self-regulate. But here's what I would say. You'll have a hard time truly changing your basic temperament. So, with that said... In your families, I would say each of us needs to make an assessment, first of all, of our own temperament, and then also try to acknowledge the temperament of our fellow family members, because that will be helpful information when there's time to address some type of conflict in the home. Because you know good and well, if you're married and you've been married for a while, you know the kinds of things that will spark certain responses in your spouse. True? You think to yourself, if I say this, she's going to say that. <clears throat> she's going to respond this way. Or he's going to, I know how he's going to take this. Parents, husbands, wives, <clears throat> we all have that. And so, acknowledging that on the front end is important. <clears throat> now, people can learn to self-regulate. They can. Y'all are familiar when a, a Walter Mitchell, y'all have seen the videos, I'm sure, of the famous marshmallow test, you know, where you bring the little kids in and you put the marshmallow in front of them and say, now, if you can just hold on till I get back, you can have two marshmallows. Y'all remember watching all those? And you remember how some kids, as soon as that guy walks out the door, that marshmallow is gone. Other kids will just sit there and tap their fingers, you know, just kind of look at it, reach up, touch it, poke it, you know, make little designs, put, put their hand off of it. Other kids just sit there and look at it. Well, he did longitudinal research for about 30 years on these kids and just how they continue to behave and monitor and self-regulate. In other words, his point was some kids, temperament is temperament. So I think you get the point, right? Does that make sense? <clears throat> just acknowledge it. We all have different temperaments. And, but here's the teaching from this text that I want to talk about. That is assertive honesty can actually be helpful if it's done correctly. Look at what this text says. Look at verse 25. He says, put off falsehood and speak truthfully. So the admonition here <clears throat> from the text is that family, that, that churches, these are church relationships originally, they need to be contextualized by truth because truth is the basis of community. We have to understand and believe truth. We have to be willing to accept and acknowledge truth in order to even relate to each other. And so in the church, we have to deal with truth. I would take that to the family, that it is necessary that you and I as family members that we learn sometimes we've got to deal with the truth. So we have to put off falsehood and assertively sometimes deal with the truth and sit down with situations and say, here's what's going on in our family. Now, sometimes there are some family members that don't want to deal with the truth. That makes it really hard, doesn't it? Some family members don't want to tell the truth. That makes it really hard. Some family members don't want to acknowledge even the reality of truth. That makes it really hard. I get it. But those of us that are responsible in our families, we have to be willing to honestly deal with issues and speak truth as hard as it can be. Temperament sometimes feeds into that. Some people want to be more aggressive in dealing with the truth. Some people want to take a little time. You've got to figure that out as a family. But I want you to notice what the text says. As you do this, he says, as we make our way through this, look at verse 29. If you're going to speak the truth in your family, 
don't do it in an unwholesome way. That word that's translated unwholesome in the NIV is a polite translation of that word. That was the word that was used to describe foul-smelling fish that had gone rotten. So don't let rottenness spew out from you in your conversation. Now I will tell y'all, when things are going well, that's easy. Good morning, honey. Hey, good morning. How are you? Great. How are you? It's so good. You look really nice today. Thank you. What's going on today? What are your plans today? Well, I've got to do this. Well, how can I help you? Those times are easy, right? But when you walk in the door like Deborah did and slam the door and you wake up, that's not quite as easy. And if you're not careful, foul-smelling fish can just emerge in the house. Well, you and I have got to learn in our relationships that we can address the truth and do it in a way that's not unwholesome. That we can be mature enough to self-regulate. And so <clears throat> it's challenging, but it can be done. We can learn with each other. We can even respond by saying, you know, that smells like foul fish. That's what the preacher said, what you just said. You could have said that really differently and I might have heard it. But when you say that right there, it stinks so bad, I can't hear anything you're saying anymore. Okay, I'm sorry. Let, let me rephrase what it is that's bothering me. So we can learn ways from each other when it comes to dealing with issues in our family and we can figure out how to address our anger. As a matter of fact, it, we need to acknowledge it. Look at verse 26. Paul doesn't say, don't get angry because he knows better. Now he's not talking about righteous indignation here, I don't believe. He's not talking about Christians being angry about slavery or injustice or poverty. That, that's not what this text is about. There are other places where the Bible addresses those kinds of things. This is just personal relationships where Paul knows you're going to get angry with each other. It's going to happen in the church. It's going to happen in our families. So notice what he says about, the, about anger. He says, in your anger, do not sin. In other words, you have an opportunity to express it. Just don't do it in a sinful way. And so, I think we all would agree that when I read these statistics on domestic violence, there's no question anger is at the heart of all of that. People in homes are living with all kind of anger, all kinds of frustration. And unfortunately, they're expressing it in ways that are damaging, sometimes irrecoverable. And so, we've got to figure out in our families how to help our children and ourselves Learn how to manage our anger and express it in ways that are not abusive. And so, acknowledging it and being able to handle it without it leading to sinful and more brokenness results. It's really hard to do. So with that said, here's what I think is one secret to it. I think having a commitment to healthy conflict resolution is essential in the family. And be committed to it as the leaders of the family. Because that sets the tone for the rest of the family. Paul says here in this text, we're all members of one body. In other words, we should have the same commitment. We all belong to each other. But notice what he says in verse 26. He says, don't let the sun sit on your anger and give the devil a foothold. Because Paul knows that if you allow anger to just exist... You don't express it, you don't resolve it, and you're not committed to resolving family conflict, 
then there's going to be a problem. Because here's, here's what I see play out sometimes in families. When anger begins to ex- be expressed, the goal all of a sudden becomes to win and be right. Now here's what I want to tell you. If every time you engage in conflict in your home and your goal is to win and be right, you may do both of those and you may lose everything that's precious to you. You may win and you may be right. But if you choose to let that be the overarching goal of every conflict in your home, I'm here to tell you, I've watched it play out over and over and over again. You just might lose everything that's precious to you. The goal is not to win and be right. The goal is to resolve the conflict. (laughs) The goal is to figure out how do we get to, to a place where we can resolve this, put it to rest, and move on. Here's the challenge that couples have when couples get married. Everybody is raised in a certain way of a certain culture in a family, a certain family setting. And so you think about it, when you decide to get married and you've been raised in this particular environment and you've watched out your whole life, you've watched conflict be managed like this, whatever this is. And you're marrying this other person and this other person did not grow up in your house. Hopefully, in the best case scenario, okay, y'all are making fun of me for being from Alabama up here, so I'm just saying, in the best case scenario, this other person did not grow up in that family setting. So guess what they did? Their whole life, they have grown up in a family culture, and they have watched. They've not been in charge. They've not been in charge. Their kids growing up, they've watched their family manage conflict like that, whatever that is. So when you get married, this just moved in with that. So what should you do? Should you say, you know what, this is better than that, or that is better than this? No. What you need to do is do like the little proverb says, take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and create something even better. That's what we should do. It's really hard to do because we just default to it. And so we've got to learn how to self-regulate and we've got to make a commitment to resolve conflict. So we need to be open and honest about it. <clears throat> you can say together as couples, you know, honey, I realize in your home, y'all always talk stuff out at the table and you just said what you had to say. I get it. That freaks me out. We just didn't do that in my home. In my home, we sulked. Okay, we just, we just kind of sulk. So could you give me just a couple of sulking minutes just to throw a bone to me to let me kind of get my bearings here? Yes, I'm gonna give you that as long as you come back to this table because sulking's not the answer, neither is explosion. Is that making sense, y'all? Because it's going to happen. And if you're not careful, you can't help but just result back to default back to whatever you were taught growing up, whatever you just saw played out. And it's also connected to your temperament. So what I would say is the goal is not to win. The goal is not even to be right. The goal is to help your family come to a healthy place where conflict can be resolved. Now, here's what I would say about being able to do it, though. When the Bible says, don't let the sun set on your anger. I don't don't know that I think Paul's necessarily saying, get everything resolved tonight. But I will say this, going to bed mad... 
Going to bed mad leads to waking up mad. Waking up mad a lot of times tends to go into bed mad again that night. So don't give the devil a foothold. Figure it out. Manage this conflict. Come to some resolution if you can. I would say this when I see this text. I think collaborative efforts in forgiveness and grace are crucial ingredients to resolve conflict in families. Make a collaborative effort to learn together how to grace each other, how to forgive each other. Some people say, well, okay, that's, that's just weak to just forgive. No, weak people don't forgive. It's the opposite. There's strength in forgiveness. There's strength in showing grace. You know why? Because God shows grace and he forgives. And you think God is weak? God forgives and shows grace out of his strength, out of his character, out of the goodness of who he is. And so you and I have got to learn how to grace and forgive. Isn't that what this text says? Paul says, be compassionate to each other. Be, be kind to each other. Forgive each other the way your mama used to forgive you. No. Forgive each other. How? The way God in Christ has forgiven you. And so what that means is, y'all, we have got to learn how to forgive in grace. It may take some time. It doesn't mean you ignore things. It doesn't mean you sweep them under the rug. You still talk about it. But at some point, you make the choice. At some point, after confession, a desire to move forward, a recognition that you all believe in the best for your family. At some point, you get to that point to where you look at each other and you go, I'm, I'm sorry, me too. I forgive you. Me too. Just me even saying that right now, I can just feel my body relax. And grace is then given. And you don't always extend grace because they deserve it. You extend grace because it's the right thing to do. And guess what grace does? It just, it just washes over everybody in the home. And it changes and transforms people. It doesn't mean you let them off the hook. That's not the point. You don't just let it go. You try to resolve it. And let's don't let this happen again. But let's move forward with grace and forgiveness. Yeah, it's hard to do in real life. But you know what? It's possible because I've done it. I've had it done for me. Here's what I tell you about grace. I believe this about grace. I believe grace perhaps is more transformative in your life when you give it than when you get it. Because we all want it. But when you give it, it just does something to you. So come on, y'all. Families. Let's figure this out. I don't know if y'all remember Jess Moody. Jess Moody was a, a preacher when I was much younger in seminary. And a very famous preacher in those days. I want to read to you something he's written in a little book of his. He says, I taught a Bible class at the home of Barbara Homeyer, the champion spark plug heiress. Amy Vanderbilt called it the billion dollar Bible study class. Princess Alexander of Greece came. When she came, she brought Rose <coughs> Kennedy to my Bible study. Now, y'all remember Rose Kennedy. That's the matriarch of the Kennedy family. When I saw that Rose Kennedy was present, I immediately changed my subject for the day to death. I shared these three truths. Now, this woman, Rose Kennedy, had been through death. Her sons had been both assassinated. 
And so I taught these three things about death. You can fight it. You can take flight from it. You can make a deal with it. After the class was over, Rose Kennedy stopped by and whispered in my ear. I made that deal with God a long time ago. I was a spoiled young bride of a strong-willed man, a socialite, who attended every function possible. We were expecting a child, and we were quite elated at the prospect. The day came when our child should come. She was a beautiful child, and we were ecstatic. It wasn't long until we realized there was something terribly wrong with her. We took her to the doctor who confirmed our fears. Now, this is old language, so don't judge me. She says she was retarded, and nothing could be done. Some anger grew within my heart. How could God do such a thing to this child, and especially to me? I turned my back on God, my husband, my closest friends, and I became a recluse. My husband and I actually seemed to shun the child. One evening, a major event was happening in the city, and I wanted to go, but I was so filled with wrath that I thought I might create a scene. My husband feared it, so we decided to stay home that evening, and I was boiling with resentment. There was a lovely woman who was one of our maids, and she sensed my boiling soul. Please excuse me, Mrs. Kennedy, she said, but I've been watching you the last few weeks. I love you very much, and I hate to see this destroy your life. I say this as gently as I know how. Mrs. Kennedy, you will never be happy until you make your heart a manger where the Christ child may be born. I fired her on the spot. You have no idea how filled with anger and how isolated and how focused on doubt I became. That night, my mind ruminated relentlessly, keeping me awake until the late hours. I could not forget that lovely face, the sweetness of her countenance, the subsurface joy that seemed to boil up continually in her spirit, and especially in those deathless words, Mrs. Kennedy, you'll never be happy until you make your heart a manger where the Christ child may be born. Jess, I've loved Christ my whole life. I tried to be a good Catholic girl all of my years, but this was one of those joyous moments of real contact with God and Jesus. So I knelt beside my bed and I prayed, Dear God, make my heart a manger where the Christ child may be born. I felt a fresh new divine entry into my life and there was born in me that morning a passion and a love for all children, even my own. And by the way, I rehired my lovely maid. <clears throat> Forgiveness is powerful. It's a gift. And it allows us to move beyond the anger that can unsettle us. So let me encourage us all this morning. Let's become experts in anger management. May it be so. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, today we, we're grateful. Lord, we've, we've had a sweet day here. We, we love seeing all these children, honoring our college graduates, blessing these families. But Lord, we also acknowledge the reality of our families that we know that our families are home to love and blessing and acceptance and grace, but we also know that sometimes it can be challenging and difficult. And so Lord, today I just pray for our families here in this room, joining us online, the ones on our campus, the ones who may hear this service later that might be dealing with anger today in, in an unhealthy way. And I just ask God that you would give us all wisdom to learn how to manage in those situations and that you'll protect our families from behaviors of abuse and violence and that somehow we would find our way to appropriately do what this text says, to be angry and not sin, to not give the devil a foothold. 
to not let unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, to address things with truth and honesty, and to be kind and tender-hearted toward each other, and ultimately finding a way toward forgiveness and grace. And may our families be refreshed and restored, and may they find real life in those moments that sometimes might seem our greatest challenge. And may you, in the end, receive the glory from it all. And this is our prayer today in the name of Jesus. Amen.